this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. Today, we will offer in four conversations from episode 31, our kickoff of a month-long review of the changing landscape we all saw at Diesel Congress 2023 and the American Diabetes Association Scientific Sessions, my one-to-one conversations with Mazen Nuruddin and Bjorn Schadenberg. This conversation includes the second part of my interview with Bjorn Schadenberg. We start by moving beyond drugs to discuss the importance of non-invasive testing and the multiple types of activities and inquiries observers are lumping under the rubric of artificial intelligence. Bjorn enriches this conversation by discussing a poster he shared at Easel, which goes into an AI-assisted mode called QVessel. It looks at researchers' ability to quantitate changes in blood vessels and liver architecture as cirrhosis progresses. This example provides a contrast between how we develop diagnostics for scientific insight versus for drug approval versus for clinical applications and patient treatment. We highlight some of what we consider to be some of the most exciting drug development pieces to emerge from the Easel and ADA meetings and comment on how the nature of the questions we're asking in 2023 versus 2019 demonstrates how much we've learned about liver disease over the last few years. Our entire key opinion leader and advocate team has been struck forcibly by how many studies provided significant advances in knowledge and how some of these advances might change our underlying appreciation of drugs, diagnostics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and how we think about fatty liver disease overall. It's quite a lot to digest and very exciting to consider. So sit back, listen, learn, enjoy. When you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Jörn Schattenberg. But moving on and discussing NITs, as you said, um, clearly that's also the second most exciting momentum we've seen. Revisiting Easel there for a second, we had a large number of presentations from the Nail NIT. There was litmus presentations still. We've seen diagnostic biomarkers, a change under treatment. There's a poster I was presenting before at Froxafermin. This is clearly the tools that we have developed over the last years that are lined up ready to be used by non-expert hepatologists to identify identify the patients at risk and also monitor their treatment, I think, in the future. So clearly, the NIT story is something that allows us to speak about management of patients with the new drugs. Roger Green. I think that, I think you're right. I think that'll be vastly helpful. In terms of the regulators, those are going to be different challenges. Regulators were still st- stuck for the time being with ordinal histopathology. Absolutely. Which could kindly be described as a blunt instrument. I think so. One of the things we also saw emerge in Vienna that I commented on, I think, on our last podcast episode you weren't on, is we use this phrase AI in so many different ways. But even if we limit it to the use of AI in cleaning up the drug approval process, the question becomes, is what we're trying to do simply reduce the variance around reads using the same ordinal histopathology measures that we've always used, which feels like it's kind of the path AI approach or AIM path approach? Or are we trying in the process to improve knowledge? And does that belong in the drug approval process or does that belong outside the bounds of that? You know, we did this extra so you were part of with Arun and David about the study that they're doing with histo right now, which I believe we're probably reporting out of ASLD, which is a very, very rigorous look at all that. But in the end, how will that affect approvals versus the overall development of drug knowledge? I don't know. I'm not I'm not smart enough to know the answer to that question. But You're very smart, Roger. You're being polite enough to trying to lure me into a definite answer here. I guess the way you were thinking about AI is liver histology assessment, and that's an augmentation of which you, we see a number of technologies both looking at the categorical stages of the NASH-CRN to support uh, regulatory drug approval, but also so 
also interesting novel aspects. And I presented this in a different abstract at Easel, something that was called Q-Vessel, uh, looking at the vessels within a liver biopsy as patients progress to cirrhosis. We saw changes in the architecture there, which is not surprising, but we're able to identify them and quantitate them. And I think that's where, from an academic perspective, we'll end up with ways to generate hypotheses and maybe even develop a better understanding of this disease as long as we have liver histology available. So I'm excited for it for both terms from the liver histology perspective. But the next layer is that we also use that in, let's say, labs, clinical notes, and actually identify patients at risk for the future. And we've done some quite some time ago, the, the NASH map algorithm was discussed on this podcast, and um, that paper is published by now. So you can use AI in all different contexts of use to support the management, the identification, and in the end, uh, treatment uh, response prediction. And for that, I think it's a very uh, interesting theme. In the end, obviously, uh, as you point out correctly, biopsy will help us learn something as long as things as long as there are biopsies. And frankly, there are decades of unstained biopsy slides that anybody who can work with an unstained slide can go back and, and develop a, a really rich trove of available data. Uh, well, once you stain it, you change it, obviously, so that's problematic. Ultimately, from the presentations you saw in NITs, do you have a vision of how all that might develop in clinical use? How will we ask doctors to use NITs, say, five years from now to treat and evaluate patients? Did you see papers that gave you a sense of how that's going to work? So my clinical perspective is to implement these type of changes in the diagnostic arena will take quite a long time. And physicians will use their traditional liver enzymes to probably assess if a patient gets better, or looking at treatment start and then on treatment, ALT changes, and we might be able to classify patients that respond rapidly or more delayed based on that pattern on liver enzymes. And then, of course, they're going to be more advanced NITs. The question is, are those reimbursed and do I have access? And that's the most pressing part here because we're not going to see uniform adaptations throughout healthcare systems cover coverage by payers. So my assumption is that unless a drug is linked to a certain NIT through the label, let's say a response prediction that's dictated by the regulators, we'll see very diverse aspects on how to assess MASL-D. And a lot of it will be imaging based, but we'll also see use of very plain liver enzymes on treatment. Interesting. When you say imaging based, uh, are you envisioning a lot more use of VCTE or subsequent generations of VCTE-like technology? Or are you going all the way to MRE, MRI? So it's probably going to be ultrasound-based technologies assessing attenuation and velocity being calculated into elastography in, in a certain machine, and there could be multiple of them. What else of all that you saw last month really got your attention? So obviously, having attended Vienna, I felt the treatment aspects were very exciting, in particular as uh, looping back to the therapy session, we saw so many different MOAs. There was the siRNA knockdown. There was a dual agonist. We had obviously the thyroid hormone receptor beta. And this is just um, a lot of MOAs we're seeing here. I'm not not all Mike made it, but I'm very excited about the genetic approaches because I, I find this is novel and something that has been already implemented if you think about the PCSK9 inhibitors. So that is exciting. But then again, at the same time, the availability of orals, GLP-1, and data was presented in the New England back-to-back with the FGF-21 that was given as a late breaker. Uh, that just shows me that the combination of different compounds will be possible in the future, and I'm sure we'll be able to use that uh, to reduce fibrosis burden in our patients. Well, and after hearing for years about the FASIN inhibitors, I think then that showed up with a significant amount of data for the first time. Right. So that was uh, that was the next one. Yep. 
for the longest time, we talked about PPARs, and now um, the phase three lanifibrinor is enrolling, and they're kind of in a data hole a little bit, but that doesn't mean that drug has disappeared. So I think also that MOA is um, still valid in a total different indication, and the fibrinor re-emerged actually in the context of PBC. So also that drug class is something to keep in mind because they, again, seem very safe, positive metabolic profiles, and if they hit both endpoints in phase three, that's going to be very good news. Well, and Lanny, Lanny uh, certainly in phase two is a lot more promising than Ella was in NASH. As you point out, the Ella phase three in PVC is pretty exciting. And you have the Cinebay compound, which is also in phase three in, in PVC, which also looks promising. I didn't want to sidetrack us, but we have the PPARs in the back end, uh, and we haven't seen too much about those in the NASH arena here. So I think that is exciting. Beyond that, again, the momentum to have these communities, uh, endocrinologists, diabetologists, hepatologists, seeing the same drug class as being explored should really help us to move together and act united for the best of our patients. I don't think PPARs are sidetracked because here's, here's the interesting thing. Going back to mirages and, and deserts and shiny objects or lush fruit trees 50 miles off in the distance, the reality is right now we have resmeterol and if clinical trial progression is linear and things work more or less the way you predict based on where everything sits today, Lani is second up. So when we think about the practical evolution of the treatment of the disease in the hands of clinicians as compared to what's exciting in the research horizon, you really can't overlook PPARs. And you're right. Right now, Lani is the only one in late stage development for this indication. And there wasn't a lot of new Lani data in this meeting. We might not have given them that attention, but they look like they come up second. Yes, they'll come. I mean, there are more phase three programs. The thing is, if you have an approved drug on the market like SEMA, you can produce additional data from that without talking about your indication of NASH, which you can't do, obviously, if you're pursuing it uh, in a drug development program. So that's a little tricky, but more things to come. Well, the other interesting thing to me is that there was a lot more excitement about the GLP-1 GIP agonists a while back. And now less on that, right? People don't talk much about terzepatide. Catatide got, I guess, discontinued. And a lot more interest in, in the GLP-1 glucagon agonist the duels. Yeah, I think a uh, reason being, of course, the glucagon receptor being uh, liver-specific, you expect more liver-specific uh, MOAs. And with all the uh, GLP-1s, we only have indirect metabolic effects that would benefit the liver. So th- I think that is one reason. And I don't see a study program for terzepatide in fibrotic NASH. So clearly, the mechanism of glucagon receptor agonism, and we see a number of compounds that differ with regards to the affinity to those subreceptors is something that I'll be, I'll be interested in. I'm, I'm, I'm more prominent in that class. But then also the triple agonist was recently presented, right? Right. So as we're, as we're speaking, I'm actually scrolling through the Eli Lilly Clinical Pipeline webpage. And they report that they have terzepatide studies in phase two in NASH. But really, uh, that's it. Ritatritide is in phase two in obesity, not in NASH. They don't really talk a lot, right? Well, they, they've got they've got a uh, PMPLA uh, 3-SIRNA in phase one for NASH. But for all the excitement that Lily produced about obesity and all the conversation about what that's going to mean for NASH and, and the future of NASH, I don't see, at least on this page right now, an awful lot of uh, evaluation of those drugs in that indication from Lily, at least. I don't, I don't, I can't speak for the rest of the world. You know more than I do because this is a world you live a lot closer to than me. Altimune and, and Merck presented on phase 2A and 2B NASH studies in that in one session in Vienna. Is anybody else with a dual agonist or a treble agonist presenting in NASH right now? So there's a dual agonist developed by Bering Engelheim and Zeeland Pharma, actually, and they have cooperated on that and data presented at ADA in San Diego. Um, and they have a NASH program that has been enrolled in phase two. So we'll see where that goes. Many, 
again, those GLP-1 glucagon receptor agonists are going to be different based on efficacy and tolerability. And the determinant is how strong are they binding to the respective receptors. Actually, that's interesting. I, I guess that's right. So a, a phenopegdotide, which Merck presented, is in fact the Hanmi phase two that Hanmi has been posting on forever, which is fast-tracked. I believe they've got a treble also, although I didn't see any signs of it in this meeting. So I, I could just be wrong about that. But it's it's an exciting area. What else did you notice in Vienna? Let's revisit the patient pathways. And you said Kankuzi has been uh, complaining about the nomenclature that might water that no, line. I, I wouldn't say complaining. I, I would say he was wistful. Ken doesn't complain. Ken's one of the most optimistic people I know. I, I'd say he was wistful. He adapts and develops solutions. I saw a lot of posters on, again, NIT-based identification and referral pathways. And if we leave the name behind for a second or the acronym, we could say that we define patients based on their NIT pattern. And there was some presentations on that referral, FIB4 follow-up or primary testing with a um, direct fibrosis marker. And that, in the end, if you educate our peers on a marker that's available in their pathway and they can use it to identify a patient at risk of advanced liver disease, then we can focus more on the advanced disease stages, call them liver patients because that's what they are uh, in the presence or absence of obesity, and then focus on the management of these patients. So I think that's also important to not lose the focus with all the many patients affected by metabolic dysfunction associated steatotic liver disease that we really want the ones with advanced fibrosis and a drug will have to show efficacy in that arena to really move the needle uh, in terms of prognosis. And that's at least my belief. That makes a lot of sense to me, particularly given that we've seen work with SEMA, right, in NASH that's had tremendous effect on, it's been able to move NAS scores, but not yet fibrosis. That's also my answer to the thought that by cutting body weight in everybody, will that cure all liver disease? And I think um, we said that once or twice here, this might not be the case for all patients. For sure, it will be beneficial in particular in earlier stages, but I would rather have an antifibrotic or an effective drug that halts fibrosis progression, decreases the amount of decompensation and reverses fibrosis. I think we discussed treatment, NITs, referral pathways a little bit. What else was there? I think an overall big unity on um, wanting to move the field forward in terms of nomenclature, in terms of identifying patients and a big debate. Um, maybe if we move to the next level, uh, screening for complications, that's still unanswered. Uh, but boy, I have to tell you, these are better questions than 2019 when the question was, how do we get one drug over the line? Where the definition of over the line is, what do we have to do to get something to regress fibrosis? It, it, it's it's such a such a richer view. And I agree with you that the uh, RNA knockdowns are a fascinating issue. Those move us a little bit more closer to personalized therapies and remove the discussion around just moving fat or metabolic burden out of the patient. And uh, again, one of the workshops I had with Elisabetta Bugianese um, was on lean NAFLD, and in particular in that patient population where we kind of see the disconnect between the classical obese patients and the, the severity of liver disease. This could be, of course, a fascinating story. Well, it's going to be it's going to be an important story because, as, as I think I've commented, that progresses faster and, and it's, in terms of short-term investment, it costs the healthcare system more short-term spend because it's a faster path. Although four years ago, people believed that from every stage to every next stage of fibrosis was seven years regardless of patient. And now we're saying four years in diabetes from F3 to F4, which makes that far more urgent, frankly, because four years might not sound like a lot, but four years ago is when you and I started talking. So, and you know, the truth is a lot of those lean NAFLD patients are excluded from clinical trials um, based on the inclusion of uh, BMI above 25 and more. And uh, if you look at the weight loss medications, typically they're even higher, 28 or even 30. So are there any trials looking at lean NASH right now in drugs? I'm not aware. I think most limit the BMI to the lower order of obesity or being obese. So with all that, we're going to take an edited version of this 
conversation and milestones and maybe one more and post them today or tomorrow. We'll be back on Monday with Stephen and hopefully one other person talking specifically about some drug development issues. And then we will dive into the rest of the month and ITs and uh, clinical care pathways and all the amazing information that came forward. It's an exciting time to be working in this space, I got to tell you. I've decided when we go up with a new website, we're going to have Mesh Nerd as your title. It's the same excitement here. Incredible to be a person being able to write this wave or sit on this beach, if you like, and um, very exciting to uh, our future uh, discussions around it. I kind of like that we can sit on the beach watching people ride the wave. Now, of course, we have to do that with hot coffee. We can't have alcohol. Coffee's good enough. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Next week, we'll be back with Stephen Harrison to discuss some of the major drug development stories of these two sessions. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.